an hour of truth for the battered but proud people of the Empire State. From the financial and entertainment epicenter of New York City to the sleeping and empty small cities and towns of upstate, which once bustled with manufacturing, mining, and farming. We all know from inspiration, history, and nature, we deserve a return to the success and growth of generations past, a birthright being squandered by corruption in Albany, and the depredations of an insecure, scheming mountebank posing as governor, who loathes both us and himself. As liberty beckoned to enslaved peoples behind the Iron Curtain via American broadcasts after World War II, we now say, believe, rise, and join us. Welcome to Radio Free New York. Welcome, everyone, to Radio Free New York. I'm Kevin Wilson, your host for today. Thanks for joining us. We're here live on WYSL from noon to one on this wonderful, chilly Thursday. And we're also live on our Facebook streams and Radio Free New York, Andrew C. Hollister, the, on Twitter, on YouTube, all those places. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. I look forward to uh, seeing what you have to say about this phenomenon that I've seen going around the last couple of weeks is is something I think that, that kind of scares people. It's it's having video come out of, of dairy farmers dumping thousands of gallons of milk and in, in, uh, vegetable farmers dumping all this produce. And, and some people look at this stuff and they're like, man, what on earth is going on? And, and I had to do a lot of research into this. But luckily, I have an expert on the show today. We are joined by Dan Stewart, who's a, a field crop advisor from Chautauqua County, who works closely with uh, mostly dairy farms and all aspects of crop production and environmental planning. Dan, thank you for joining us. Hey, glad to be here, Kevin. Yeah, so so Dan, uh, you know, t tell us a little bit more about what you do and, uh, you know, what, then let's get into what, what on earth is going on here. What I do, I, I'm a field crop consultant, so we work on all aspects of uh, crop production with our, the farmers. Uh, we're a non-governmental organization. We're a farmer-owned cooperative. Uh, we, basically, the farmers own our business, and we do integrated pest management. We do soil sampling, fertilizer recommendations, uh, a lot of IPM, um, you know, scouting fields. And again, mostly dairy farms that we work with, but some vegetable farms as well. And uh, like, uh, I guess, probably all segments of industry in New York, especially small businesses, we've had a lot of challenges here. You know, and it, we had challenges before this whole COVID-19 epidemic came along and, and it's just kind of exasperated things. Um, to jump right in, so what, what's going on with the dumping of the milk? Uh, yeah. Most of it's a logistical challenge. It's not that, you know, the farmers are having a hard time producing the food or there's shortages of food, it's that actually the, the processing capacity is not there. Um, just speaking of milk, most farms, most dairy farms are either a member of a cooperative which negoti negotiates prices with a processor, so the people that are actually bottling the milk or you know, producing the cheese or the yogurt or cottage cheese and uh, the processor is then selling it to the retailer or to you know the the restaurant or along those lines and pretty much the biggest challenge has been that the processors you know they're set up to say produce a certain amount of milk and small one pint cartons for you know say the schools 
or right. in big volumes for the restaurants, and they can't just switch over to retail packaging that quickly. Right. I mean, you know, I, I, I look at the situation and, and part of me thinks like, I, I understand it, but like, you know, why not? Like, why not? Are, are retail plants just not able to like take on the excess volume of milk or is it like a contract thing? Like what's happening there? Well, so, so again, if, if you can imagine, we're, we've gotten pretty lean, you know, in, in manufacturing, there's all this just-in-time manufacturing. So, you know, especially with a perishable item like milk or vegetables, you can't just put a lot of it in storage. So when you have excess milk, you can't be storing a lot of milk, uh, you know, in, in, in tanks or in the cartons. I, I think the average, what I've read, is like two days from the time it leaves the farm until it's actually at the retail plant. And so again, you know, these processors are trying to be as efficient as possible, so it isn't like they have a lot of ex excess capacity to, to just switch to, you know, like say doubling the amount of uh, uh, one gallon containers that they're producing and sending out there. Um, they, they'd have to switch a lot of stuff over. They'd have to go to the people that are manufacturing their jugs and, you know, and basically ask them to up the, ramp up the production and so on. Um, so, right. and, and, and again, some of the processors are really highly uh, specialized on who they're producing for. I'll just use, you know, for example, my, my brother and my mom, they still have a 300-cow dairy, and their milk goes to a co-op, and mm -hmm. the co-op markets the milk to a couple different processors. And one of the processors is down in the southern tier, and one of their primary uh customers was the, was in the cruise industry and so obviously there's not a big demand for for yogurt and for cottage cheese there and so they're just basically they've reduced the amount that they're processing so it doesn't make sense to keep processing and making more because it is a perishable item so in effect uh, there's a certain amount of the milk there that the co-op you know that the because the plants aren't taking it the co-op has no no place to go with it. Um, so and that's there's nothing they it. can do. They can't store it for you know. It's not something that's going to store for for weeks or months at a time. You know, uh, they can't just wait until the everything blows over. It's so the only option is to uh, to dump it in some cases. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so again, you it isn't like they have all these big tanks out there where you can just go and put it and leave yeah. it there. It, it, it doesn't happen. We're, we, we're really lean and efficient on a lot of our food production system. Um, and it's, it's the same thing with, like, right now, I, you know, just this morning I heard in California, now's the prime time for the strawberry uh, production. Like, there, there's a lot of strawberries that are ripening, and, and they're having a hard time getting those moved out. Right. And so, so for similar reasons, the, the turnaround time from when you pick a strawberry when it's ripe to when it needs to, to be served when it's still good isn't that big. And there's only so much capacity for uh, being able to, to push it into like frozen foods and things like that. So, you know, what <clears throat> it, it, it ends up with uh, crops rotting in some cases, which we've seen in, in this area, too, uh, you know, similar to the dairy industry, right? Oh, that's correct. I mean, like right now, we're kind of off season, obviously. Um, right. You know, just another aspect of agriculture, and I, I'm not as familiar with it, but even, you know, let's take uh, Easter flowers. You know, mm. the, I'm, I'm assuming that all these greenhouses that were growing Easter flowers, that, you know, the demand for those went down. 
you know, people weren't going to church. Some of them, you know, were outletted through the churches and so on, and or they're just not out shopping. You know, those I, I'm I'm assuming that a lot of those flowers just are, you know, probably ended up in a compost pile somewhere. Along yeah. Those so. Lines, so. Yeah, so all that investment, and it's not like you can just suddenly stop production on something like that, too. This is months of planning for, for most of these products. So yeah, ramping up or ramping down, that's that's not too easy, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and that's that's one of the things with dairy farming, too. Uh, you know, it's, it's a, well, any farming, any agriculture right now, there's a big investment to get into it, you know, a capital investment. You know, so, you know, especially... Some of the beginning farmers, you know, they've taken out loans to, you know, start up an operation, and, uh, you know, they're when they're doing their budgeting on their business plan and so on, and, and as they talk to the banker, you know, they're putting in a certain dollar amount for, you know, planning on what they're going to receive for that product, and when when you end up dumping milk, you know, you, you're not going to get paid for it. Now, the it mm -hmm. doesn't, you know, like if they're dumping the milk from a single farm, so they might go and ask you know, say this one farm to dump, you know, dump the milk down the drain and put it in their manure storage, you know, it isn't like they're just not going to get paid for that load of milk. It's going to, the, the cost of that milk is going to get spread out across all the members of the co-op. Right. Um, so, I mean, in situations like this, is there like insurance for that type of stuff? Is... Um, generally not. Um, huh. th there's insurance, like if you, like again, milk needs to be stored and kept cold, and you know if it if it's allowed to you know heat up too much, you can have bacteria grow in it, and you know they t each load when they come to pick it up, um, <clears throat> they'll do a test on it, and, and if it doesn't pass the standards, uh, you know they end up may end up dumping that milk. So in that case, it's more like an accidental type of thing. You know, there's insurance for that, but there's there's not going to be insurance for them just not having a market for the milk. Right, not for this type of situation. All right, well, this is a great discussion, and I'm learning a ton. Uh, Dan, thanks so much for being on the show. We'll be back to talk a little bit more about this issue and uh, to get to some of your great questions that I'm getting online right after this. We'll be back with Radio Free New York in just a few minutes. listening to Radio Free New York. All right, welcome back to Radio Free New York. Thanks again for everyone who's listening in, either the live show here on WYSL from noon to one, or our rebroadcast on WENY, uh, The Patriots, uh, down in the southern tier, or WACK out in Newark. Thank you guys for tuning in today. And thank you everyone who's participating online. We've had some great questions come in, uh, and also I... I was talking to uh, uh, Bob D'Angelo, our producer, over the break, and he was he was telling me how uh, his church had bought a whole bunch of lilies from uh, Chase in their greenhouse, <clears throat> and then they were giving them out to uh, first responders, and they were giving them out to uh, essential businesses that were still open and wanted something nice to have, and, and giving them away to, to other places as well. Uh, so that that's something that's being done with it, is, is part of it's uh, being given away, too. Um, and, you know, actually, that, that reminds me, well, while I'm thinking of it, uh, Dan, we're joined by Dan, uh, who is uh, an expert in this field. Uh, Dan, are, are dairy farms or, or co-ops co uh, giving away milk in times when they can't do it? Is there, is there an alternative to dumping, and why might they do that or, or not do that? 
Well, again, you can't, I mean, in the dairy marketing system is really complex, uh, really, really hard to understand. It's, it's kind of based on the market, but it's also the government's involved in it as well. But it yeah. is based on supply and demand. And, and again, over the last number of years, we've actually had a surplus of milk in this country. Um, mainly, I mean, part of it's because people aren't drinking as much fluid milk as they used to, but mm -hmm. we haven't been able to market or export as much milk either, or, you know, or products. Um, so that, that, that's part of the challenge with it. But, you know, as far as like farmers giving away milk, uh, you can't just go to a farm and like, even if it was a smaller dairy, um, a farm's not allowed to sell raw milk. Mm -hmm. um, again, there's a licensing system for all that as well. So it's illegal to sell raw milk right right from the farm. So it isn't like you could. Uh, I assume the farm could probably give away, you know, raw milk from the tank, but it would be really hard hard to do. Um, I mean, do, do you giving, think that's I, a, a good like system? Pardon okay. me. Oh, I said. I mean, do you do you think that's a, a good system? Is that a, a, an unnecessary government barrier, or do you think that uh, it, it's a worthwhile protection? on, uh, you know, selling well, raw I, milk I think, or selling direct to consumer. What, yeah, I think that's what the intent was, is that to protect consumers, because, you know, you can get bad milk. I mean, just like you can buy, you know, bad vegetables that might have E. coli or so on in it. So, it, you know, it is, they, they set up a lot of this for our own protection. But, you know, in, in, in my opinion, and again, I am, have more of a libertarian bet, I would mm -hmm. rather see it that somebody makes that own discernment on, whether the farm they're buying the milk from is, you know, is, is it a clean farm? Are they handling it well? Do they feel comfortable buying it from the farm? I don't think it should be illegal. I think if you want assurances that, you know, the milk has been handled right, you want the government to be involved in it, then by all means that would be an option for you. But I also think somebody should have the option to be able to buy it from the local dairy as well. Yeah, for sure. No, I, I mean, I definitely agree with that. I think that, you know, if we, we have a free society, you should be able to kind of weigh those risks and awards and, and being able to, to buy raw milk is one of them. And it's definitely one of the, a very popular issue among libertarians is, is you know, we should be able to, to buy directly from businesses without government intervention in, in more situations. So yeah, no, I, I'm definitely on that page there. Um, and now we're getting a couple other questions that I, I, I wanted to bring up. So, uh, we have one from uh, Robert who, who says he works for Upstate Farms. He says the biggest problem is that stores are restricting how much people can buy. So now we have to limit production, which reduces the amount of milk we take in. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I guess I, I can only judge by what I see out in the stores. And, you know, down in the, you know, the stores I go to down in the southern tier, generally smaller ones, I, I haven't had any problems. I haven't seen that. But I don't know what they're doing actually in the urban areas. Um, I don't know if the rest of you have any experience with that at all. I mean, I'll say in so I, I live in the city of Rochester, and I've seen a, a couple of stores at, at some points would say like limit to one gallon a person, or yeah, yeah, one gallon per person or per purchase. Uh, so if you want to to stock up and buy, you know two or three gallons of milk, that's a problem, which, you know, honestly is a huge issue. If you have a big family that goes to a lot of milk uh, and you want to be able to buy that, it's not an option for you. It, and again, it was more my understanding that they're, you know, they're trying to ration it to a certain extent. 
Um, hey, what have, Kevin, what have you seen as far as prices on milk? Has, has the price of milk gone up in the stores or not? You know, I, I haven't seen it uh, too much, at least in the stores that I've done. It, but, but you know, that that would be uh, an interesting response to that, right, as as people start consuming more retail milk because their children aren't in schools getting the, the milk in that way or, or people aren't consuming milk in restaurants so they're consuming milk on the retail side, it would make sense to have prices increase in response to demand, right? But a lot of times those prices are uh, a, a bit stickier in, in, in part because of uh, government restrictions, as I understand, but I, I don't know a ton about that. Would it make sense for prices to go up? Should they? Well, that would be the, to me, that would be one way of rationing it. Um, you know, if you really want the milk, you should be willing to pay more for it. And that keeps somebody from buying extra milk, which, again, it does, in some ways it doesn't make sense knowing that it's a perishable product to have somebody buy, you know, 10 gallons of milk and try to put it in their refrigerator and have it go bad after, you know, three weeks. It, yeah, you can't, you can't really hoard milk all that effectively, I guess, right? It's just not not going to work because I, I don't even think you could put it in the freezer it's not going to work that way <laughs> exactly. um, yeah so so it would make sense but if you do have a big family right because I, I i see this with uh like bread too uh you know i've seen some people the stores are limiting uh you know to people to buying two loaves of bread at a time and you know again if you if you have a family of five or six that eats toast and sandwiches every day that's going to last you only a couple days and then you have to go back to the store again to get it I would think the same thing with milk for some families too. It's why, why limit it? Uh, I think the consumer knows whether they need to buy it, and I think they're only going to learn that hoarding lesson once <laughs> if they have a whole bunch of milk that goes bad on their hands. That's right. Um, <clears throat> so I guess you know, going back again, like the amount of milk that's out there. So there, there, there is a lot of milk out there, and like I said, there was a surplus, and uh, and and it's based on overproduction of milk where you know farmers dairy farmers that it's pretty much the goal to the the way you make more profit is by producing more milk at you know low cost and there's so there's an incentive for each individual farm to produce more milk you know to help its own bottom line but when each individual farm does that it adds up to a lot more milk on the market and because the price is based on you know the supply versus demand uh, milk prices have been quite low. Um, we've had, basically for the dairy farmers we work with, well, anywhere across the United States, the milk prices have been depressed where farms could barely make any money over the last four or five years. In fact, a lot of them were operating at a loss. And uh, they were kind of looking forward to 2019 because it kind of was getting to the point where the supply of milk and the demand was kind of balanced so farmers were looking forward to a little bit higher price for their milk, and uh, and then when this happened, it's it's kind of driven it right right back down. So there's there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of farmers out there that aren't feeling really good, and this weather doesn't help at all either. No, uh, so I mean, you know, in this situation, like what what's been causing kind of that mismatch in supply and demand? Is it is it government policy? Is it just like the the way markets have been working to to kind of adjust to changes in demand? You know, what's what's going on with that? Well, well it's really hard. I'm not I'm not an ag economist. I'm a I'm a crop advisor, but you know, to me, food's a little bit different. I mean, you don't ever want to have a shortage of food within a country. 
mean, that's yeah. when you really get revolutions, right? Um, mm -hmm. So we do want it so that we have a secure food supply for everyone. Now, we don't want it to the point where food's a scarcity and the price goes way up. Um, so I, although I don't like a lot of government involvement in pricing, I think it's almost necessary, in, you know, as far as food policy for this country. Um, but, you know, again, it, farmers have tried to limit their production. Um, and, and basically, it, it makes it, it's hard for them to do that, to get together to say, hey, we're going to limit the, our production so the price of uh, milk will go up, because that's basically collusion. You know, it, it's, right. you know, it's saying, hey, we're going to quit producing as much so that we make a artificial scarcity so then the price will go up. Well, in fact, I think uh, Dairy Farmers of America, one of the larger co-ops, has actually sued for that. Now, for banding together with other co-ops to do exactly that a number of years ago. So it, it all comes back to, you know, farms kind of on an individual basis doing that. Uh, one thing I do know, uh, one of the large, again, that larger cooperative, Dairy Farmers of America, uh, their, their producers have been asked to reduce their production by 15%, I think, starting next month. And anything, you know, over that, 85% of what their historical production was, they're going to get paid maybe 50, 50% of what they would be getting paid for the other milk. So they're trying to put an incentive in there for farmers to quit producing as much. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. And so, so Dan, we'll, we'll pick up this conversation when we come back. Uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us here on Radio Free New York today. We are going to be back in just a few minutes. We'll talk to you soon. Listening to Radio Free New York. All right, welcome back to Radio Free New York. I'm Kevin Wilson, your host for today, and we are joined by Dan, Dan Stewart, uh, who is. Uh, we're talking about uh, some of the stuff going on in the dairy industry, but I, I want to give a shout out to to a couple people who uh, helped me do some research for this show. So shout out to, to Dave Reynolds who uh, provided me with a bunch of information on this too, the background, and, and Garrett Kane who uh, helped connect me with Dan, and, and Garrett also uh, had some comments in here. He says, uh, to, to a large extent, a dairy cow needs to be milked uh, to keep the animal healthy, regardless of the market. And uh, Dennis also, is it Dennis? Uh, yeah, he, he, oh yeah, there he is. He said, uh, you just can't shut the cow off. Yeah, no, you, you can't You can't just shut the cow off and, and tell the cow to stop producing milk. You gotta keep milking it, right? So that's, that's what it is. Well, uh, Garrett well, also says, Dan passes the libertarian test. So yeah, there are ways of there are ways of shutting a cow off, okay. and basically what a what a farm would normally do would be, you know, if they wanted to reduce the number of cows, is basically you'd send it uh, to the auction for slaughter, mm. and unfortunately, uh, a lot of our processing plants. Uh, our beef processing, as well as our pork and our chicken, is done in large-scale operations. 
Um, and, and I think you've seen it where they've been shutting down some of these plants because they've had COVID infections in there. So yeah, now it's to the point before. where where they can't where they can't take those animals in because they don't have again they don't have the capacity to slaughter them because they're not running their lines at all or their partial shift. It's so like even if one of these plants go down, it might be like five percent of the slaughter capacity for the U.S. Um, so, so in effect, if you send a cow to the auction, there aren't buyers there that are going to be buying these cattle for slaughter. So the price on a cull cow has really gone down as well. So you're not only you're getting rid of the cow, but you're get, you're not getting nearly as much for her as what you would have gotten like you know three months ago. Right. I mean, it is so. In New York State, would it be it would be difficult for uh, like kind of small processors uh, to to start up in that situation? I assume it's like a a big capital expense to to increase production capacity at a slaughterhouse or to start a slaughterhouse. So that that's just like not an option for like the market to be able to adjust quickly to that situation, right? Yeah, and and, and same thing that kind of goes with milk. I mean, we we you know USDA is regulate slaughterhouses um, mm-hmm. and. Again, I don't know all the exact details on it, but it is it is hard to get certified, you know, to be a butcher, you know, to do a slaughterhouse. Now, uh, <clears throat> so like some farms that would like to sell cuts of meat, uh, it, well, basically it is illegal for farms to basically slaughter animals or have them slaughtered at a non-USDA uh, uh, permitted operation and sell cuts of meats to their neighbor, they basically uh, would have to sell them as quarters. Now, the thing that's interesting is if, if you knew a farmer and you wanted to process that cow yourself, if you wanted to butcher it yourself, you'd come out to the farm and basically take possession of that animal and do the slaughtering yourself um, on it. And so, believe so it or can, not, I, can, I just... If, uh, if I knew how to do that process, I could I could buy that that animal from a, a farmer directly and then slaughter it, butcher it, and, and then have it for consumption for myself. I just can't sell it. Right, you can't sell it, and you could you could go and buy that animal, and then you could either have the farmer transport it, or you could transport it yourself to the certified, you know, butcher shop, and they could do it for you. The, the problem is, is there's a limited number of USDA-certified butcher shops to do that. The, the interesting thing was last week I was on a small farm. I'm talking like a 40, 50 cow dairy, and I was looking for the farmer, and and I came out back, and actually there was a there were a group of, I guess I'll call them immigrants from Bhutan, that mm-hmm. were basically slaughtering a cow, you know, right there on the farmer's presence. Uh, you know, right at the farmstead there. Um, they'd come out of Buffalo and, you know, basically we're butchering it and we're cutting it up in the quarters and we're going to take it back home. All right. Yeah, that works. I mean, if you're, if you, if you have the skills to do that and you know what to do, buy it direct from the farmer. I mean, that, that seems like a good situation to me. I know that's how, how I buy most of my beef is we, we go get a big group of friends together and we buy it, but we have to, to get it processed through um, a butcher that uh, the, the farmer knows. Um, but that's that's what you know we're able to do, and it, it it'd be interesting to see if if more people are starting to do that as like 
there's some minor disruptions and, and maybe some major disruptions in, in the food supply chain in terms of processing. Cause that's why I understand is, is happening is the, the processing is where everything's getting bottled up right now. It's just with people getting sick or people worried about going to work, it's just slowing everything down. Yeah. And in fact, yeah. Um, and one, one other point I wanted to point out with dairy farms, as far as them cutting back on their milk production, you know, even even if they did get rid of some of the cows, uh, they still they they've already invested a lot of money in putting up the feed, you know, the forage crops, the corn silage, the alfalfa, the grass, you know, the hay over last year, and so that's sitting in storage there and. The way they get the money out of that crop that they, you know, invested in and harvested last year is through their milk. It's not like they can take that, you know, corn silage and there's not a ready market for it. So, you know, that's how the dairy farmers trying to get their their money, you know, get some income. It's through the milk and the meat. And right now the markets are extremely depressed. Yeah, I mean, is there any like policy solution to, to make that better? Are we just going to have to hunker down while uh, you know the the coronavirus is is hitting? Well, I think um, I, do, I talked to one of my farms I work with, and and I guess the the farms were eligible to apply for that pay, paycheck protection plan. Um, so, you know, this particular guy I talked to, he had put an application in on the first round. I think he said the application came out on a Friday and he had it in on a Sunday night and then they requested more information and as of yet it hasn't been approved. Um, and that money's probably already gone as we well know. Um, the second round, I don't know about that, but the, the farmers, you know, being a small business, they did, they did qualify for that. and. From what I understand, there's going to be some money being made available for commodities, you know, you know including, you know, corn, uh, beef, dairy, et cetera, in this next round here. Uh, but again, I don't think that's a sustainable thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, kind of related to that is, is that kind of the only solution is to have the government either guarantee prices or buy some of these uh, kind of uh, – you know, products that are getting kind of caught up in um, pre-production. Yeah, and that's what they did in the past when, like, when there's a surplus of milk, a lot of times the government, you know, would go into cheese, which you can store for longer periods of time, and the government would basically buy it up and then, you know, basically sell it or, you know, give it away, and this was years ago. Um, so, you know, there used to be some programs like that. But, again, it's very complicated, and, you know, you have unintended consequences of any policy you do, and, and unfortunately, when you when you get government involved, there's going to be loopholes, and somebody's going to exploit the the rules for their own benefit. Yeah, no, and that's what I'm thinking. It might provide some immediate relief, but but I always wonder, you know, what, when you have a situation like that and you have government distorting the prices, what are the, the long-term market effects of, of providing those particular incentives when, you know, it, is it worth going through the short-term market pain in these situations? Or when you have such a big crisis like this, you know, do, does the government need to step in to, to do that? But, you know, kind of my inclination is no, maybe the government shouldn't do that. But I, I understand that a lot of people are hurting and... Uh, there, there's a lot of demand for that type of thing. 
Yeah, I mean, it's going to, I mean, and every farm's different. I mean, there's some farms that are well-established and had pretty good reserves. Um, even though they went through some pretty bad years here, they, you know, they're in a situation where, you know, 30, 40 years they've been in the business and paid down debt and, you know, hit some profitable years and have some reserves and those guys are going to be okay. There's other ones that were in the midst of expansion or just getting started and, you know, when you don't have any, for them it's really challenging because when you don't have any money at the end of the month to pay your creditors, I mean, everybody's hurting for sure. Yeah, right. No, it really starts to, to get out of hand. And um, I know we're coming up on a break soon. And, and when we come back, I do want to talk about another topic that I know you want to talk about with, with uh, the farm labor bill. So we'll, we'll get some uh, opportunity to talk about that. But thanks again, everyone, for joining us here on Radio Free New York. We'll be back for one final segment in just a minute. Welcome back to Radio Free New York. I'm Kevin Wilson, your host for the day, and we are joined by Dan Stewart, who is uh, educating all of us about the dairy industry and agriculture. It's Dan has been so informative. I appreciate it. And thank you, everyone who's listening online uh, and out there on the radio, too. Uh, some of the questions have been coming in have been excellent. The comments have been excellent. You guys rock. Thanks for participating in this conversation. And, and I, I do want to just apologize. I know we're getting a little bit of interference uh, with uh, some of the, the sound quality today. So I apologize for that. We, we, we try to make our, our sound very crisp, but sometimes these things happen. We try to fix it. But, but Dan, uh, when we were talking uh, the other day before, when I was asking about coming on this show, I know there's a few other issues that you really wanted to talk about. And we wanted to get you on the show for a while, actually. But So, so Dan, uh, can, can you tell us about what's going on with uh, farm labor and, and what's What's happening with that? What are what are some of your concerns, uh, and you know how do we how do we move forward with with that? Yeah, so amongst the other challenges that farmers are facing right now um, in New York State, when when the basically the progressives got control of the New York State Senate and controlled the you know basically control the legislature and then our our governor. Um, they had a really progressive agenda, and one of them, one of the agenda items they had was that they felt that farm workers were not being treated fairly. And so there had been some legislation in the past, and uh, they moved, you know, that they had proposed, and it was able to be blocked. And when they got control, they pushed it forward, and and that's the Farm Workers Fair Practices Act, Farm Labor Fair Practices Act, and. Uh, I mean, I think everyone knows that the minimum wage in New York State has gone up a lot in the last mm -hmm. number of years. I think it's it's curious. I think it's currently at 11.80 an hour. Well, in the past, New York State actually had, uh, if you were in farm labor, the minimum wage was actually lower than the regular minimum wage, and um, farmers did not have to pay overtime over 40 hours. Uh, when the, when they started passing these higher minimum wages, they basically said, "All right, farm labor is going to be the same as what it is for the rest of upstate New York or New York City, depending what where you are." Um, so then, their agenda they did last year is they were trying to push through that basically farm workers would be paid time and a half overtime, like other industries, and and it was really and basically they're. They're looking at 40 hours. They did get it 
uh, you know, there was some lobbying efforts and they got that increased to 60 hours. But now farmers are having to pay, you know, time and a half and it's at that higher wage rate. Um, well, you know, Dan, let me jump in for a second and, and just ask, you know, like, when we play devil's advocate, why, why shouldn't you get paid time and a half for working on a form? What, you know, everyone else does. So, so why not? Why is it different uh, in, you know, the farm industry? Well, I, I don't, you know, to me, I don't know whether everyone should. I, I shouldn't. I, I don't think uh, government should be involved in it in general. You know, I think it's an agreement between an employer and an employee, they have a contract, they agree on it. Um, it it's, uh, no one's making somebody work at a, at a place of business. And especially over the last number of years where we've had high, we've had very low unemployment. And so actually, you know, people hiring, you know, the businesses hiring are, are the ones that are at a disadvantage, I would say. They, they don't have any leverage. So if you want if you want to keep an employee, you've got to make conditions really good for them, and you've got to you've got to pay that wage. In fact, most of the dairy farmers that I work with, they they paid well over the minimum wage. Um, the challenge is on a lot of them, especially where they're using undocumented workers or migrant workers, is that they're also providing housing, which there's no credits for that either. So basically, and plus these workers that are up here they're, you know, they want to work a lot of hours. Um, if, if you were working in a factory situation, I think the management would have it so they could minimize the wages. And that's not, you can't do that in farms. Um, and, you know, and again, so it, going back to like the dairy farming, they can, they can it, it is a little bit more structured, you know, like on milking times and shifts and what the responsibilities are. So the dairy farms have been able to kind of adjust to that overtime provision. So they've been able to keep it down to, you know, for most of them, down to 60 hours or just over it. Um, when we start getting out in the field crops, uh, you know, there's times like, like right now, you can't be doing any work. So you have people that aren't working, you know, maybe 30 hours a week or you're trying to find stuff for people to do. So you have them when the big demand for, you know, work is there. Uh, and for vegetable growers, it's even more of a challenge. Um, there's one vegetable farmer that I, I work with, and they, they're they cutting back their acreage by 50, 50%. Um, the reason why is they've used the H-2A program, which is a federal program, and the minimum wage on that is $14.29 uh, an hour, and plus they have to provide free housing. So this is actually a program. You go through the government, um, federal government, and you get those workers in there. You have to pay them that. You have to pay them the housing. Fourteen dollars. Uh, our state, though, they're going to have to pay them time and a half over that 60, 60 hours a week. And again, when you're harvesting vegetables, you, in, you need a lot of manpower there to do that. And you go down into Pennsylvania, or if you go to Mexico, or other places, they're not paying those wages. So it's really making their cost of labor, uh, you know, for farms in New York State. And, and I'll say vegetable farms and then orchards as well. You know, a lot of orchards uh, use, uh, use this H-2A program, and it's going to increase their labor costs significantly. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like labor costs is going up a, a ton. And, and I, I kind of get the, you know, like if, if you're in harvest season or something, you have a limited window. And so that's why you're going to be working a lot of hours at once, I'd assume. Um, but yeah, if you're, I mean, in New York State, uh, farms are, are, are they having trouble attracting workers or is it, or is it easier to attract workers because they, you know, get higher wages here? Like what's, what's going on with that? Well, you can't stay in business if you have to pay more. Um, I think, well, part of the problem was the, with the H-2A, again, you know, these, these, these people want to work at least 60 hours a week. When they come up here, it isn't like they're setting down roots. They're here to work and make money and send it home. Mm-hmm. Um, especially, you know, you take some of the undocumented workers. Um, you know, they're coming up here working. They're sending money back home. They're building houses back in Mexico. They, they don't have any interest in being part of the community. Here. They just want to make as much money as possible, and uh, you know, again, you're in competition with other, you know, with other states. And, and and if if I understand this right, I mean, I think to get somebody to come from Pennsylvania, you know, to to here, you've got to make your conditions better for for the workers. And I, and I think that comes down to anything. I mean, anybody. Yeah. No, I mean, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's how, you know, markets and labor work. Labor is kind of a, a thing that gets sold just like anything else. You sell your labor to your employer. So you're, you're going to want to go where you're able to command a good wage, where you're able to get treated well. Uh, and, and a lot of times the uh, government set conditions on these where you're not able to, to work, you know, the way you want to be able to work. And that's what, you know, we, we see in New York State where, where the state wants to be able to micromanage these things, which sometimes gets in the way of, you know, workers and employers being able to come to agreements that make sense for both of them, because it has to be a push and pull. Right. And, and, and basically, I mean, what, like as the vegetable farmer ex- explained to me, like he, they were selling a lot of their, you know, peppers down into a market in New Jersey. And he was saying the wholesaler down there, he doesn't care whether the, the peppers come from New York or if they come from Pennsylvania or if they come from Mexico, he's going to He's going to pay the lowest amount he can for them, so he can, yeah. you know, he can make a profit as well. Uh, yeah. It just Peppers gets to the purpose. point where you 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 price yourself out of being able to produce that produce, you know, for a profitable price, and um, it, it's really not. If you're a dairy farm or a vegetable farm, you can't pick up your land and move it to another state. You're you're absolutely right on that, and and that's that's where we are. We we you know farmers uh, have to to be able to work with what they have. You can't just move your land. You can't just leave. You, you got to make conditions better here. And and Dan, this has been an awesome conversation. Uh, it's been very informative with me, and and everyone listening out there, I hope it's been informative to you too. So Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for being a guest on Radio Free New York. We'll be back with more Radio Free New York tomorrow. Talk to you then.